I would have to say probably about 10 days. And yeah, you know, right after the first time I quit drinking, I was in the rooms. About 10 days, I was at maybe my third meeting. And I remember in the middle of the meeting, sitting down, and all of a sudden, I got this intense, warm feeling that ran through my body. It was almost like a heat wave going through my body. And I remember every muscle in my body just relaxing. I said, man, I said, it was just, it was a real spiritual experience that I just got this feeling of peace that everything was going to be okay. And I had never felt that before in my entire life. This spring inside my body that had been coiled all my life, just all of a sudden unwound. And it just said, it just told me you're safe and you're going to be okay. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, we have Steve C. joining us. Now, we're going to be discussing a lot of different topics, but one of one that caught my attention, one that we haven't discussed before and I thought I would give a little bit of attention to prior to the episode, was the topic of PTSD. Uh, Steve spent time in Iraq on a few tours of duty there and experienced quite a bit of PTSD. And as I'm sure many have used drugs and alcohol to cope with the post-traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, I was just kind of reading up a little bit about the treatment for PTSD. Here's some of what I found out. It says that, that today there are good treatments available for PTSD. When you have PTSD, dealing with the past can be hard. Instead of telling others how you feel, you may keep your feelings bottled up. But talking with a therapist can help you get better. Cognitive behavior therapy is one type of counseling. Research shows it is the most effective type of counseling for PTSD. Uh, your therapist helps you understand and change how you think about your trauma and its aftermath. Your goal is to understand how certain thoughts about your trauma cause you stress and make your symptoms worse. You will learn to identify thoughts about the world and yourself that are making you feel afraid or upset. With the help of your therapist, you will learn to replace these thoughts with more accurate and less distressing thoughts. You will also learn ways to cope with feelings such as anger, guilt, and fear. After a traumatic event, you might blame yourself for things you couldn't have changed. For example, a soldier may feel guilty about decisions he or she had to make during war. This is also when we when you go when we go into Steve's story, this is exactly where his post-traumatic stress disorder came from. It was decisions that he had made while he was on his tour of duty that led to a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And instead of seeking therapy, he jumped into the bottle. And also I read a little bit about group therapy where it says that many people want to talk about their trauma with others who have had similar experiences. In group therapy, you talk with a group of people who also have been through a trauma and who also have PTSD. Sharing your story with others may help you feel more comfortable about your trauma. This can help you cope with your symptoms, memories, and other parts of your life. Group therapy helps you build relationships with others who understand what you've been through. You learn to deal with these emotions such as shame, guilt, anger, rage, and fear. Sharing with the group can also help you build confidence and trust. You'll learn to focus on your present life rather than feeling overwhelmed by the past. Now, for those of you that have been through the steps, I'm sure you will recognize how being part of a 12-step fellowship covers everything that they're, they're suggesting in the group therapy. 
shame, guilt, anger, rage, this is all covered in the fourth step. And prior to getting to the fourth step is steps one, two, and three, where you, A, admit that you're powerless over drugs and alcohol. Two, coming to believe in a power greater than yourself to restore you to sanity. And then finally, step three, which is turning your will and your life over to the care of God. Now, if you haven't worked through these steps yet, then what I've just described to you as far as one, two, three, and four might not make as much sense until you've actually done it. But when you, when you dive into step four, you discuss all the traumatic experiences in your life that have caused you so much pain and damage, all the resentment, all the anger. And you know, for me, for example, I had so much shame and guilt associated with all the damage and the wreckage that I had caused to my wife. And so that was, I remember that the, these feelings would constantly be bubbling to the surface and bubbling to the surface. And I wanted to blame so many people for everything that was happening in my life at that moment, because it was so difficult for me to look at my part of, of the situation. So it wasn't until I looked at my part of the situation and really did the work necessary, shared about it in the meetings, shared about it with my sponsor, worked the steps. And again, I'm generalizing because I've already done it. And for those of you who have already worked the steps, you guys already know that as far as dealing with anything, including PTSD, that the steps will help you uncover and ultimately help you find peace. More importantly, allow you to make peace with all the traumatic experiences uh, that have happened to you in your life and also that you have caused in other people's lives, which ultimately, when you move to step nine, you'll be able to make amends to the people that you have harmed. So I just felt like it was really important to touch on this topic because we've never really touched on it before and it's in its entirety, I think for many of us, we've all experienced PTSD coming into the meetings, coming into the rooms, and there's so much pain associated with getting clean and sober that in many cases, this is what causes the relapse. You know, you have a fight with your ex, you have a fight with your wife, you have a problem with your kids, and it evokes a feeling. In Spanish, resentment is, is resentimiento, and sentimiento is a feeling. So the meaning is you are re-feeling. And when you're having a resentment, all you're doing is just re-feeling an uncomfortable old feeling. And it's in that moment where you have a choice to make. Do I call someone in the fellowship? Do I call my sponsor? Do I call a friend that I trust? Do I call a therapist? Do I go to the liquor store and buy a bottle of Jack Daniels? Do I call the dope man and get some weed? So again, the choice is up to us on how we want to deal with these things. And in many cases, the short-term quick fix for relieving this trauma is to take some sort of medication. The long-term, fully sustainable way of managing PTSD is to work a program, to go to group therapy, to see a therapist, to do the hard work. You know, and in my experience, doing the work has changed my life innumerably. So I would highly recommend that you just give yourself a chance, give yourself an opportunity to learn and grow. And for me, I did that in a 12-step program. So now let's dive into Steve's story. But first, a little Share Podcast news. Okay, guys, so if you want to know the best way to support the Share Podcast, one way, first and foremost, is the Facebook private accountability groups. For example, the Share Podcast private accountability group is thriving. We're getting new members daily, and the members that we do have right now are posting every single day. They are supporting the newer members. 
the newcomers, the people with less amounts of clean time, and we've also got plenty of members in there that have a substantial amount of clean time. We're talking 5, 10, 20 plus years on some of our members. So it's a it's a great community that's really helping a giving the newcomers a place to discuss what's going on with them currently and also b it's giving the old timers an opportunity to do a little service and share their experience strength and hope. Again, I come from a 12-step fellowship, a 12-step background. So for me there's no substitute for a 12-step fellowship for going to meetings, for getting a sponsor, for having a support network and group in person that you can go to and hold yourself accountable in there. But as far as adding something more to your already existing recovery program, these Facebook groups are, from what I can see, performing miracles. I'm watching people change overnight. They're doing, especially the newcomers that come in and are doing service and are posting in there and are replying to people's posts and and giving their own experience about what's going on with them. It's been really wonderful to watch. So if you'd like to participate and join the private accountability groups, just send me an email at o at thesharepodcast.com. We'll hook up on Facebook, and then I'll plug you right into the groups. Another way you can show your support is by subscribing to the Share Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and also leaving us a five-star rating. And for those of you that have made donations, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And this absolutely helps financially support the Share Podcast. We're so grateful for your generous donations. If you'd like to donate, just go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. On the top right corner of the page, there's a donate button. And on the right-hand side, there's a navigation bar. And there's a yellow button that says donate via PayPal. Click on that. And also, if you're going to be shopping on Amazon anyway, there is a Amazon banner right underneath the donate button on the homepage or on any of the pages, actually. Click on the Amazon button before you make your purchase. And we get a little bit of a kickback, a commission based on your purchase. It doesn't cost you one penny more when you buy, when you make your purchase. But if you're going to buy something on Amazon anyway, then click on that banner and it's also going to help finance the Share Podcast without costing you a cent. So the Amazon button is one of my favorites because it's a win-win for both of us. And for those of you that are looking for more than one podcast to listen to, check out www.soberpodcasts.com. There you will find the Share Podcast, the Recovery Elevator, WWA, Wrestling with Addiction, and the That Sober Guy podcast also listed in that group. So if you're running out of episodes to listen to, that's a great resource. So you can be sure to have a new episode ready to go every single day. And the podcast that I listen to a lot that I really enjoy is the Rich Roll podcast. That one's been around for a while and has just a ton of great podcast with some really cool guests. A lot of the guests being recovery-based since Rich Roll is a recovering alcoholic. All right, so that's all the time we have for the Share Podcast news. Let's jump into Steve's story, but first, a quick message from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery, and addiction news, 
as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get the daily distribution via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it is, man. I love having you on the show. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fantastic today. I really am. Life's been good. It certainly has. Can't complain. And we're going into the holidays. So it's always either a plus or a minus, depending on uh, how much sobriety you have. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is. I've been able to celebrate a lot of great things and since I got sober. You know, starting next week. On uh, December 11th, uh, God willing, I'll have uh, four years of sobriety. And in those four years, I've been able to attend my daughter's wedding, walk my daughter down the aisle, and toast her with water at her reception and not feel one bit out of place, actually feeling like I was totally in control. And I've been able to go do all these great things in sobriety that I thought were impossible when I was drinking. I didn't think it was going to be possible to go to a party. I didn't think it was going to be possible to go to a sporting event, go on vacation, enjoy the beach. And I've been able to do all those things. That's amazing. And speaking of which, when is your actual anniversary date? My sobriety date is December 11th, 2011. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it's coming up. Yeah, it's going to be next week. So, four years. Four years. As a matter of fact, I will be in Ireland, which is always a challenge when uh, <laughs> I, I have a client over there that I represent here in the United States. And I've been there twice before in sobriety. I've been able to go all over Ireland. They actually, they really tested me the last time I was there. They toured the Guinness Brewery while I was there. And we had dinner in a private tasting room. And uh, I was the only sober one in the group, and it was pretty interesting. But oh. uh, it's international, man. <laughs> I can only imagine. You know, Irish, they know how to drink and they know how to fight. Which is true. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, it's, and actually, it's really, I think it's the Americans that go a little bit crazy when they're over there. Normal Irish people have to work and live there. So they have a normal, well-rounded lifestyle. It's just the tourists that go a little crazy, I think. <laughs> I can believe it. So, Steve, let's dive right in here. Tell us about how your life is today, your hobbies, exercise. Take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Okay, absolutely. Well, my uh, daily routine is very varied at this point. I am traveling around the country and soon to be internationally. I have a medical device consultant company that I put together. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm representing a client out of Ireland who's introducing new medical devices in the United States. So on a daily basis, tomorrow morning, uh, I will be in an operating room in scrubs instructing a physician how to properly implant our new medical device that we're trying to gain FDA approval of in the United States. And at a moment's notice, I may have to uh, fly all the way across the country to do it the next day. So that's kind of what my life has been. It's been pretty crazy. And uh, as I mentioned to you in my email to you, as a Jewish show has become a big part of my recovery program, when I'm home, I normally get four or five meetings in a week 
On the weekends, I still am able to get in maybe two or three. And I always try and find meetings when I'm on the road. That's how I work my recovery. And um, I have sponsor, I have sponsees that I talk to on a regular basis and uh, also do some other types of mentoring we can get into later. So it's kind of keeping me grounded with, along with your programs, keeping me grounded in my recovery. Well, I appreciate that, Steve. Yeah, you mentioned that on your email and what an amazingly busy life you have. It's like, wow, I'm listening to you going, how do you keep track of everything? It's like, and all the traveling, but it's still fun and exciting. I love going to meetings in other parts of the world. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. I tell you what, it's been a spiritual experience. Yeah, I've been some really interesting meetings. I went to one meeting in Indianapolis a couple of years ago, early in sobriety. And it was, you know, it was like a, a meeting that hit, started at five o'clock. There was a big snowstorm. So just about everybody who walked in that meeting was from somewhere else and it got stranded in the snowstorm. And we all had very interesting stories. Everyone had a, a different reason for being there and it was really touching what people were sharing. You know, I had one kid was there and he was back to tell his parents that he was gay and he was nervous about it. I was dealing with some serious issues with my son who also suffers from this disease and I shared that. And uh, everybody, it was just a great meeting of everybody just opening up. And it was, it was almost Twilight Zone-like that people were coming from all these different areas and they all came together in one place. And then I had another meeting last summer. I was in Boston and it was a meeting in a monastery. Ooh. And it was, and I met the drunk monk. And it was, <laughs> it was uh, this guy, he was a Francescan friar and it was fascinating. He told his story, you know, and it's about how it came about that. The brothers were giving him a hard time because he was passing out and blacking out every night, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the common room. And so he talked about his recovery. It was just fascinating. You never know what you're going to run into when you go to these meetings around the world. No, not at all. And it is so cool. I've been to meetings in Amsterdam and Prague, London, all over the U.S. I'm so grateful. And every time you go, I don't know about you, but I show up at a meeting and you never know what to expect. And... By the end of the meeting, it's so uplifting and so inspiring. And then afterwards, because I'm from Costa Rica, most people come up to me after me and they're like, oh, my God, you're from Costa Rica. How cool is that? And I'm like, dude, I'm in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> it's all perspective, man. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, Steve, tell us, how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? Well, I learned very early, and I tell you, I have to confess that I wasn't one of those guys that got on his knees first thing in the morning and got on his knees at the end of the day. But I'm starting to do that more now just to keep me focused. Normally, as I said, there's a lot of travel time, and there's a lot of time when you can just sit there and start thinking. And uh, as you're sitting there thinking, you get sort of meditative, and you can start thinking. And, you, you know, I talk to God all day long. And just try to open myself up and try and keep open. When I first came into the program, I said, you know, how am I supposed to know? I said, turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. I know what I'm saying, but how am I supposed to know when he's talking to me? I said, am I going to see a burning bush? <laughs> and the amazing thing is I all of a sudden realized that God was talking to me through other people. And he was using people on earth to communicate me. And when I was asking, it always seemed to be that whatever issue that I was meditating on, someone would bring it up at a meeting and the conversation would take place. And that's when you start getting those, there's no coincidences. So this is how he's communicating with me as he's communicating me through these people, Absolutely. these people Absolutely. I'm meeting, meeting. And it's other people that are spiritually aware. I'm like a child when it comes to what my spirituality is. I can't, 
I can't sit there and quote scripture or anything else like that. But I just know that when I'm around other spiritual people, there's a connection and there's a kind of a unspoken communication that goes back and forth between us. And you really feel it. And I tell you, and the only place I really felt it is in the rooms of recovery. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I forget. It's a good reminder for me. Yeah. So tell us, Steve, how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, the interesting thing is I think the first time, I know I came out of the womb an alcoholic. I come (laughs) from a long line of alcoholics on both sides of my family. And uh, I think the first time I had a drink was when I was three years old. And my dad was in the backyard with a long neck bottle of Black Label beer. And I remember grabbing it and taking a sip of it. And I remember liking it. <laughs> Alcohol was very, very common in my family. I thought everybody's dad drank four cases of beer a week. I just kind of, I was just used to it. I remember I used to see these four cases of Black Label beer would be sitting on the landing as you walk down into our basement. You know, I just kind of thought that was just kind of common the way most people lived. My parents used to have these cocktail parties on Friday and Saturday nights. And as a little kid, I used to peek down the hallway and, and see them and they'd be all dressed up and they'd be holding their martini glasses. And it just looked so cool. And I just always associated drinking with being an adult. And I thought the adults were the ones who were having all the fun. And and I hated not because they used to always keep the kids away. And I always wanted to be part of it. And so that's just something I accepted as part of life. And like I said, my parents would let me sip here and there and never obviously give me a full drink. But right. I remember being very comfortable and being around it. But I do also remember, and I learned this in recovery, was that they always kept all the damage hidden from us. They would never fight in front of us. If my parents were going to have a fight, they'd make us leave the house and make us play outside. And normally it was when my dad was getting a chewing out that uh, – <laughs> This would take place. And my mother could go on for a couple hours. So I remember trying to listen in at the window. What's dad getting chewed out about? He used to be like a mule in a hailstorm. He'd just sit and hunker down and take it because he just knew he was going to get out of it. Uh, I didn't know any adults who did not drink. So I just took it as a fact. But um, I had a great childhood. I was the fourth of five kids. So that's probably another reason why a lot of stuff was kind of protected of me. My older brothers and sisters were um, kind of like blazed a, a pathway for me. By the time I got into high school in Michigan, I grew up in Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, and uh, they had a drinking age of 18 at the time, So, which basically meant that you could buy beer and go into a bar when you were 16, and nobody would card you. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't have to hide it all that much. And I had an older brother who was very popular, a big popular football player in high school. In his senior year, he was 18. He could legally drink, and he used to throw cake parties in our backyard. And uh, I remember I started dancing with some of his girlfriends, the girls that were there. And I ended up dancing with this, the drunkest woman that was there. All I can tell you is she looked like a, a blonde Barbie doll. And um, <laughs> she, you know, just big, busty gal. And she was so drunk. And she danced. And I ended up making out with her in the backyard. And all my brother's buddies, you know, these big football heroes were all slapping me on the back. And I really thought I was something. So next thing I know, I'm waking up the next morning and I'm sleeping in my bed. She's sleeping next to me. Fortunately, we still had all of her clothes on. We both passed out and my dad's shaking me awake and my mother is like screaming. Oh, my God. I wasn't as embarrassed as this poor woman was. But uh, all I remember was my mother just talking about how horrified she was (laughs) and my father and brother back in the hallway giggling. And uh, (laughs) so I got quite the mixed message about that. 
I said, oh, this is a lot of fun because you're mixing two of the things I like best, drinking beer and hanging out with girls. I got to tell you, that's a timeless story, Steve. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> timeless. I love it. Steve, you're all warmed up here, buddy. So it's time for me to turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, the battle you had with drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Steve, take it away, buddy. Okay, sure. Anyway, so like I said, you know, I grew up fourth of five kids in this, um, you know, this fun-loving family. Little did I know, I found out my parents never told me about the alcoholism in their background. I knew my dad drank a lot, but there was never any negative consequences. He never seemed to change. He could drink beer all day long, and you never saw a change in personality. You never saw him get angry. He was just kind of steady as she goes. Yeah, I just thought that was normal, so no negative consequences there. But I learned at a later date, you know, I always thought that my mother's mother was just kind of this quiet, boring woman. Well, it turned out that she really suffered severely from alcoholism all of her life. My mother ended up sharing with me when I grew up that my grandfather and my grandmother got divorced back in the 1930s when it was almost never heard of. So when they split up, and it must have had something to do with her drinking because she took my mother down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And my mother told me that she just went from man to man down there. And she said she lived in 26 different houses as a kid. Wow. Because she kept count. And she said each man that she hooked up with got worse and worse. And so finally, near the end, I guess things got so bad down there that word got back to my grandfather. And uh, he decided to come in and rescue my mother and agreed to remarry his wife and get her out of there. So he remarried her moved them all back up to Detroit and uh, tried to put things back together again. So my mother just worshipped my grandfather for that. And then she just tried to manage my grandmother's alcoholism. And we all know how well that works. Oof. So they just kind of kept her hidden. So really, most of the time, they kept her hidden and uh, they went on and lived their lives. I kind of suspect my grandfather might have been in the program because he never drank. Or he didn't drink. As my mother always said, well, your grandfather quit drinking because he had diabetes. And that's the only thing she ever said. But he was a happy guy. And when I learned more about my grandmother, I don't know how he could have been so happy. But uh, he just seemed to be a very happy, sober guy. So he might have had a little bit of the program in him. But back then, they really kept that quiet. Right. So he was truly anonymous. And then on my father's side, I never met my father's father. But my father's father's story is very much like uh, Bill W., he was what Bill W. would have been if Bill W. had been successful as a businessman. <laughs> and that's how my parents met. He was there down in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, my grandfather was probably one of the most successful developers back when they started developing Fort Lauderdale and um, had tons of money. He had my father later in life. My father's mother died, and he ended up marrying this trophy wife who ended up being my favorite grandmother. She was just a wonderful gal. But she couldn't put up with him for more than a couple of years, and she was going to divorce him. And so basically, she ended up getting all of his money. The poor guy died in 1959. He was a, probably one of the wealthiest uh, real estate men in Fort Lauderdale. He died alone in an apartment. And uh, I always asked my father how his father died. He always said, well, you know, he died of old age. Wow. And of course, I found out later that he died of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. So. He died of this disease, too. So I come from a strong family connection to it. So I come by it honestly, but I take full responsibility for it. I knew all the warning signs were there, and um, I knew I should have been more careful, but I just I followed my own path, and on went life. 
anyway, things didn't go too crazy other than that one event in high school. You know, otherwise, I kept it kind of together and got decent grades, went to college. I had a fun college life. Never really got in trouble in college. Just had fun. Decent grades in college. Started noticing some patterns maybe by my senior year. I had been selected to go into the Marine Corps officer program when I graduated from college. So I pretty much had my job set up when I graduated. So I kind of goofed off my senior year and I was in a fraternity by then. And we started getting together every night. It probably, you always knew that at 11 o'clock at night, I could find everybody at the bar. There's a bar that was like one empty lot away from my fraternity house. And I always knew that if I went to that bar around 11 o'clock on any night of the week, I'd run into somebody I knew and some of my buddies. So that just kind of got to be kind of a comforting thing, you know, to go in, have a couple beers there. I was a resident advisor in my dormitory. So people started noting that, why is your car always in the far back part of the parking lot? Well, it was because I was always the last one coming in at night. You know, I was closing <laughs> up the bar and rolling in. So, yeah, it just got to be in a little bit of a habit. So this was 1980. And so when I went into the uh, – I graduated from college and went into the Marine Corps. I tell you what, I went from being kind of a 70s, fun-loving, wild child to going into the Marine Corps. And one thing about the Marines is they are serious about being Marines. Yeah, I was all of a sudden went from being, you know, this fun loving guy to saying, Hey, you're going to be in charge of people. You need to take this seriously and you need to knuckle down. So it was an intense environment. I went through some, you know, six months of some very intensive training in Virginia and uh, I was kind of half hearted at it. I said, boy, I'm committed for another four years here. And I don't know if I made the right choice, but I started adapting and there's this one thing they have in every you know, quarters that they have for officers, they'll have an officer's club there. And it's kind of a bar. It's kind of everything. It's your bar. It's your restaurant. It's, you know, kind of where you go for your social life. And that became kind of a very comforting place for me. I was probably one of the better customers of all the guys in my platoon going to that officer's club on a very regular occasion. I was a very mediocre student then. And I end up not getting, you know, of course, they give you some choices. Where would you like to go? And of course, I wanted to go to Hawaii was my first choice. California was my second choice. <laughs> I threw in Okinawa, Japan as my third choice. And I got Okinawa, Japan. Oh, wow. And so I got shipped off to Okinawa for a year. And that uh, was an interesting experience. They call it the rock because it's three miles wide and 80 miles long. And uh, if you stand up on top of the mountain, you can watch the sun rise in the morning and the sun set at the end of the day. Wow. And there's pretty much nothing but Okinawans and Marines on that island and uh, not a whole lot to do. Now, some of my uh, more creative friends were learning how to scuba dive and sail and enjoy the ocean. And uh, I just got into the party life. I just said, well, I said, I'm single. I got money. Hung out at the officer's club again, played dice with the guys for drinks. And when I was in high school and college, I'd done some acting and I'd done some productions and singing. And so I really started getting into country and Western music. And Believe it or not, there was a country and Western music scene on the island of Okinawa. And uh, damn it, I wanted to be a country and Western <laughs> singer on the side. So I started living that lifestyle. And next thing you know, I was singing for a band on the weekends. And they um, traveling around. I went from one end of that 80-mile Long Island to the other end, uh, performing in little clubs and dives that uh, with this country and Western band. So that was kind of an interesting experience. Yeah, that sounds fun. 
There's a lot of drinking that goes on with that too. And the one thing is I never really got into the, the booze. I was always a, just a huge beer drinker, but I never really got into the, the whiskey. And, and that was a big whiskey drinking thing. And yeah, my night usually ended very early if I started doing shots of whiskey. Again, no real negative consequences. I made it almost a full year on the island without getting in any kind of trouble. And with about a month left of, before I left the island, I got into, I was supposed to stay with, uh, I met some of these school teachers, American school teachers that worked for the Department of Defense. And those are the only American women you met on the island. And a group of my friends used to party with them down at this one Air Force base. And I was going to stay at this one gal's apartment overnight. And then she ended up getting romantic with another guy. So I had to leave. So I jumped in my Volkswagen bug when I shouldn't have been driving, and it was driving north and ran right into a police roadblock. And the Japanese are very serious on their DUI laws. And I figured, man, I am in trouble now. I said, mm-hmm. they're not going to let me leave this island for another year. Fortunately, the Japanese officer looked at me, and his English wasn't very good. And all he said to me was, you drink whiskey? And I said, no. <laughs> I was just being honest. I looked at straight in the eye. I said, no, because I've been drinking beer all night long. He says, okay, you go. <laughs> they let me go. So I just dodged a huge bullet there. But anyway, moving on, you know, I got back to the United States after that. And very shortly thereafter, I got this weird telephone call as I was stationed back in North Carolina for about a month. And I wasn't supposed to be sent overseas again. And uh, I got this call saying, hey, listen, you know, we understand you went to this school called Embarkation School when you're in Okinawa. And I had been to a couple schools. And I said, yeah, I, I was in that course. I passed the course. They said, well, that's good because we got a bunch of ships leaving in three weeks. We just fired the embarkation officer. And that's the guy who's responsible for loading and unloading all their marine equipment onto the ships and making sure they come off right you know, when you're doing these simulated attacks. And he said, uh, we had to fire that guy and we need another officer. And he says, and you're the only one who's been to this school that's available to go. And he said, how do you feel about going? <laughs> and I said, well... I said, I just got back to the States. And the next thing I know, five minutes later, I got a call from my CEO and he told me what a great idea it would be if I went. So someone sort of volunteered me. So I said, sure, I'll go. So three weeks later on a ship crossing the Atlantic and we were originally supposed to go to Denmark and we were going to go down to the Mediterranean, spend six months all over the Mediterranean doing NATO exercises. And so that looked like a lot of fun. I said, yeah, I'm going to stop in all these great ports. You know, I'm going to stop in Italy and France and, you know, enjoy, you know, get to see the southern coast of France. So what happened was um, by the time we got across the ocean, the whole Beirut thing kind of blew up. And this was back in 1982. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a civil war going on there and uh, there was a big massacre that took place. And so finally, uh, President Reagan ordered the Marines to go in as part of a multinational peacekeeping force. So the next thing you know, I'm sitting in Beirut, Lebanon. I'm pretty much getting near the end of my tour in the Marines, and now I'm sitting in Beirut, Lebanon, and I'm looking at a really serious chance that I might get killed. So I got serious real quick. But uh, once we got all the gear ashore, it was interesting. On day two that I was there, I was supervising the unloading at the beach, and a car bomb exploded probably about 20 feet away from me. And, And when you have a bomb that goes off real close to you, you feel this enormous a shockwave that goes through your body and you can feel the fluid moving back and forth and same thing in your head your ears are ringing your eyes are burning because all the dust is blown in your eyes and and i tell you what all of a sudden all the automatic reactions go off okay hey make sure everybody's safe find out where it's coming from and i kind of went into automatic mode and the adrenaline kicked in and i tell you what that adrenaline rush was like nothing i ever felt 
And man, I started chasing adrenaline after that moment. I said, first of all, you know, once everything kind of calmed down and realized there was going to be no more explosions and fortunately nobody was hurt. And I said, okay, we're good, man. I tell you what, I thought I was bulletproof. And uh, I started having the time of my life of all places in Beirut, Lebanon, because uh, once we got all the ships unloaded, I didn't have a job. So they started finding all kinds of little jobs for me. And one of them, they made me the entertainment officer. I was in charge of entertaining 2,000 Marines ashore. And I put together enlisted man's club and the officer's club. And I was the guy that had to go out and purchase all the booze and the beer. And I had this budget and uh, I was being wined and dined. And there was only one brewery in the entire country of Lebanon called the Almaza Brewery Company. And they only brewed beer in the summer because they said, well, Lebanese only drink beer in the summer. I said, well, we're Americans. We drink year round. And they said, we'll keep a shift open for you. So I used to buy about $20,000 of beer a week from the Almaza Brewery and have oh. it shipped. In. Meanwhile, all these poor guys are sitting there in these foxholes and I'm having these uh, Lebanese merchants drive in and pick me up and take me to lunch. And, you know, they're trying to sell me fuel oil and, you know, all the other things you need to keep people alive on the beach. And, and, you know, the fighting had kind of subsided. So I said, this is kind of cool. You know, so basically, here I am in my camouflage and I'm carrying a loaded 45 on my hip. And I had the keys to the city and uh, my ego just went berserk. So I just started thinking, like I said, I was bulletproof. I could get away with anything. Fortunately, I survived. I made it through over four months in Beirut and pretty much had a good time with myself. And we ended up being shipped out. You know, we had a replacement unit come in. Well, there was one thing that happened was, you know, when I took this assignment, they said, well, normally you're supposed to go for two tours because you're in the headquarters unit. We need to keep some kind of consistency there. And I said, well, my time of duty is coming to an end. And I said, you know, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps, probably about the middle of the time I'm going to be in that second cruise. So they said, yeah, okay, fine. You know, we'll just send you for one cruise. So I had a replacement go in in my place. Well, sure enough, I had two weeks left in the Marine Corps. I'm in North Carolina and they blew up that barracks in oh. Beirut. Killed 241 guys in one explosion and my replacement got killed. Wow. Yeah, man, I tell you what, I had the worst survivor guilt you can imagine. Basically, that was my unit. It should have been me. I should have been there with my guys. You know, maybe I could have done something differently. And uh, I got this phone call the morning it happened. I was still sleeping when it happened here in the States. And it was my CEO. And it was a phone call that you never think you're going to get. And they said, pack all your gear and get to base immediately. I said, what happened? And they said, I can't tell you on the telephone, but turn on your television. And that's how I found out what happened. So I get to the base and they say, well, we don't know how many guys got killed, but we know they killed a lot of people and we're trying to send back experienced people. Are you willing to go back? And I said, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'll go back. And oh, um, wow. so about three hours, I was getting ready to go back and they're trying to process my orders. And they said, we got a problem. They said, you're getting out in two weeks and uh, your orders are already cut. We can't reverse the orders in time. So you're not going to go overseas, but we got another job for you. And I said, what's that? It says, your job is you're going to be the guy that goes and knocks on the door and tells the family that their husband or son got killed. Oh. Uh, so I'm like, okay. So I end up sitting in a pool of other officers for three days waiting for my turn to go deliver that kind of news. And I'm just torn up inside. And the one thing, you know, I got about a 20-minute you know, lesson on how you're supposed to deliver this message and they said, the one thing you can't do is you can't be emotional. They said, it's all about them. You can't show your emotions. And so, man, I was just stuffing my emotions down as hard as I could. 
And um, I did that for three straight days. And at the end of three straight days, they said, you know what? It's taken too long to identify the bodies and you're going to be getting out soon. And we just can't keep you in this pool. So I said, thank God. He says, well, we got another job for you. I'm like, oh my God, what do you want me to do now? And they said, well, President Reagan is coming to the base for a memorial service. And since you served in Beirut, we want you to be his escort. So two days later, I'm standing next to President Reagan and Nancy Reagan in the reception line. Holy cow. You want to talk about just a surreal experience. Yeah. You know, what I went through in like a week's time. Just an amazing experience. And then, you know, just like they talk about with PTSD, a couple of days later, I get processed out and I'm back in the civilian world. I got a civilian job and I've got nobody really to sit down and share these experiences with or anybody who really understands what, what I just went through. And I get a job in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm in sales, and um, I don't know anybody there. And so I'm like, well, do what you always do. Start hanging out at a bar and meet people and make friends. And that's pretty much for the next three years, I went on a tear. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, I kind of lived. I said, well, being a yuppie looks like it's a lot of fun, you know? <laughs> and I said, I think I'll be a yuppie now. And so uh, I tried my hardest to be something I wasn't. And um, I was in a place, I was in you know, Atlanta, Georgia, was hopping at the time. I just kind of tore it up. And this is when I didn't realize until I got sober what was wrong. I thought it was everybody else that had a problem and it wasn't me. But I couldn't understand why these girls were always mad at me. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, no, why? I don't get it. And I said, you know, I never told them that I was going to be exclusively dating them only. <laughs> and uh, I don't get it. I don't understand why people are mad if I'm in a bar and I bump into them. I'm a little drunk and I spill something on them. I don't understand why they're upset. I just couldn't understand why people were always kind of mildly pissed off at me. And I couldn't understand why you know, a girl would, you know, I had one girl tell me, she says, you know what? I never see you when you don't have a beer in your hand. I didn't think there was anything wrong. And so um, I traveled a lot. You know, I traveled all over the South. And I just go make sure that the hotel I stayed at had a bar. And um, I try and pick up women everywhere I went. You know, being in the early 80s, it wasn't that hard. I just thought life was fun. Life was a party. And I started um, adding up some wreckage, you know, some just bad relationships, people getting mad and, you know, not doing very well at work either. You know, sooner or later, they expect you to sell something. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was selling industrial products to uh, paper mills. and I didn't know much about what I was doing. And I was just kind of floating through life at the time and not really a care in the world. And so finally, in 1985, I had my first bad consequence. I got a DUI. I literally drove into a police roadblock and I hit a police car. Oh. Um, and they hadn't even set up the roadblock yet. You know, it was dark outside and I made the big mistake of I missed a major turn. And I was actually driving home early in the night. I really got drunk early in the evening and was driving down a road and I thought I saw people jump in front of me. So I slammed on the brakes, jerked the car to the right and I ran into a bumper. Turned out the bumper was a police car and uh, they dragged me out of the car because they thought I was trying to run them down. They roughed me up a bit. So when they had the cuffs on me and they got me in the back of the police car, they said, well, why didn't you stop? And I said, well, I said, it's dark outside. You're wearing dark uniforms and you're black. So I couldn't see you. <laughs> That didn't go over well. No way. Not well at all. So I didn't have a real pleasant experience that night on the way to the um, the jail. Oh. And back in those days, they took you straight to jail. So I spent the night in jail. But, you know, overall, when things were, they were just starting to get a little 
1985. So they're just starting to crack down a little bit on drinking and driving. So, you know, I had to pay a fine. I had to go. I didn't have to go to AA meetings, which was a surprise. The only exposure they gave me to AA was they showed an old film with uh, Reverend Martin. You remember the uh, the priest, Dr. Martin or Reverend Martin? I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's uh, he's called Chalk Talk. Oh, if yeah, I they do, showed a lot. Maybe, yeah, they showed maybe. A lot of re- yeah, they showed a lot of rehabs, but he's kind of a funny priest, and he's an alcoholic himself, and he talks about alcoholism. And you know, and some of the things he was saying, he was definitely sowing some seeds. You know, I said, hmm, that's interesting. So that guy's kind of funny, and I, I kind of appreciate that. But I wasn't required to go to any meetings. I just had to go to a traffic school, and the whole incident went away. I didn't lose my driver's license. I didn't lose my job, but it kind of woke me up, and uh, I kind of said, you know what? I said, I think what my problem is, is I need to make a geographic change. And geographic change is going to change everything. So I moved to Chicago and I got married. I uh, met a girl and started dating for a while. And it all happened over the period of a couple of years. But I just figured a geographic change and a marriage would change everything. And for a while it did. It slowed down my drinking a lot, but I still kind of stayed at it. I still was always there. So for the next several years, I started getting serious about work. I got into medical sales, which is something I always wanted to do. And I just clicked. When I got into medicine, I really got passionate about it. I enjoyed it. And I started having some real success for the first time in my life. And that's when um, things really started taking off. And I had this thing called ego that (laughs) I found out was a real, I tell you, it was like putting gasoline on a fire for me. You know, you stroke my ego and I get more fired up. I want more. And it's just like, you know, the disease of addiction. I don't care what it is. I just want more of it. Yeah. And I wanted more attention and I wanted more success. And along with that success, you always celebrate that success by partying. And so, um, you know, we'd go to these meetings and, you know, the companies were more than happy to to lay it on before you had a meeting. And so, hey, I'd go somewhere and I, I was safe. I said, I don't have to drive. I'm not going to embarrass myself in front of my wife because she's not here. And it's kind of acceptable to party and have a good time. So I really would pour it on at these meetings we went to. But, uh, you know, along with the, uh, you know, the success and the promotions came a lot of business travel. And business travel, you can be anybody you want to be when you're in a different town. Yeah. And uh, you no longer, you know, have to be that married guy. You can reinvent yourself as single, available, successful man, you know. And I played that up to the hill. It wasn't a sex addiction. It was an ego addiction. I just wanted attention. I just wanted that self-esteem pumped up. Things got crazier and crazier, but I kept on getting more successful. And I thought, hey, as long as I'm successful, there's no real problem. You know, kids came along and raising kids in the neighborhood. I found out that I said, I didn't know how people raise kids without having a couple of drinks and chasing them around the backyard and going to parties with other parents and the other parents were drinking and that just seemed to be part of the show. And it was all in one neighborhood. We all walked everywhere. So we didn't have to worry about driving. And so I thought I had everything contained. And uh, that went on for several years. So I was kind of a late bloomer coming to AA because um, it wasn't until I got into my 50s that all of a sudden everything started to catch up with me as far as physical, mental, and spiritual. Physically, even early on when I was drinking, I started having a reflux, you know, heartburn. I said, mm-hmm. I blamed it on, well, maybe it's the wine. So I just stick with beer, but I'd still have bad. So, but you know what? The medical industry kept coming up with great inventions that would allow me to continue to party. And so they came up with, you know, Zantac. And you could take these pills that would keep you from getting heartburn. And you could drink or eat anything you want to. 
So eh, that problem is solved. Well, I started noticing I'd have mental lapses. I started short-term memory started to go. I couldn't remember names. Started forgetting little things. And uh, I just didn't seem as sharp as I ever was. And I started realizing that, you know, when you're young, hangovers are kind of funny. They don't really bother you that much because you can always sleep in. But when you got to get up and work the next morning, these hangovers could be brutal. And uh, I never graduated to the morning drink. So I would just always just suffer the next day until maybe early in the afternoon or late in the afternoon where I can drink again, that I finally start to feel normal. And that's when I started realizing that something was wrong, that I didn't feel normal when I was not drinking. Right. I said, if I didn't have alcohol in my body, I didn't feel normal. But as soon as I started drinking in the evening, I started feeling normal again. And I realized that I had kind of reset my body, that having alcohol in it is the normal state to be in. But it didn't bother me enough to really do anything about it. Finally, I said, I started having a couple of, just a couple of bad incidents that happened that really made me think, you know, I started going to Washington, D.C. a lot on business. And I was there on a business trip one time with a, a senior guy in my company. He went to bed early and I ended up going back to this one bar where I knew the bartender real well. And he kept on giving me a lot of free drinks. And when I left, I didn't think I was that bad, but it was cold outside. And then I had my hand shoved in my pocket and I was cutting through this parking lot. And they have these big steel cables that are not very well lit when you're walking through. And I slipped on one of those steel cables and I had my hands in my pocket so I couldn't break my fall. And I went flat on my face. So I busted my nose and cut up my face real bad. And it disoriented me enough that I couldn't find my hotel. So I'm wandering around the streets of D.C. in the middle of the night with this senior guy back at the hotel where I've got to go in a meeting with the very next morning. I finally hailed a taxi, told him to take me to my hotel. He wanted to take me to the hospital, and that was the last place I wanted to go because I knew if I went to the hospital, I was going to have to confess up about how drunk I was. Yeah. And I had this big boss you know, waiting for me back at the hotel. So I got back to the hotel. The people at the front desk wanted to send me to the hospital. <laughs> um, it was just bad. So I spent most of the night you know, just with ice on my face, hoping it would go down, and of course it didn't. And so I had to face this guy the next morning, and I came up with some cockamamie story that, oh, I went out for a morning jog, and I slipped, and I fell. And, and I don't know if he bought it or not, but um, he finally, about halfway through that day, and I'm sitting there, my eyes wouldn't stop watering. And about halfway through the day, he says, you know what? Let's just cut it short. I'm going to fly back. <laughs> and so um, oh, wow. I think he knew. And yeah. so sure enough, about six months later, I got fired from that job. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever been fired. And I know that that played a role in it. I said, there's just no question in my mind. Of course, nothing was ever said. I had no problem finding another job, but I started realizing that the end was near, at least as far as my drinking was. I just couldn't picture not drinking. So I figured, well, I'm going to try and control my drinking. There used to be a program called uh, uh, Reasonable Recovery or uh, something like that. And what they said, the way to do it was, don't drink for 30 days, and then after that, drink no more than four drinks in one setting. I could never get the 30 days in, you know, because <laughs> there was always something coming up. There was always a birthday or St. Patrick's Day or Christmas or something, and I said, no, I, I can't do it until there's some time where I could never find that 30 days. So that must tell you something. But uh, right around this time, too, I had mentioned earlier about my son. My son started developing some addiction problems. I finally convinced the family, we need to go talk to a family psychologist about it. And we sat down with the family psychologist and they started really asking me a lot more questions about me than they were asking my son. 
And I was being honest with them about my own alcohol use. And I became the focus of these family counseling sessions. And that was eye-opening. I said, wow. And this woman looked at me and she goes, well, you're just a happy drunk, aren't you? (laughs) And that really bothered me. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I guess that's a good way to describe it. Anyway, again, things were progressively getting worse with my son. And in his first rehab that he went to, we went in for family day. And that was the first AA meeting I ever went to. And I remember sitting in the family meeting and I started sharing with all the guys who were there in rehab. And I started laughing with the guys. And my wife is sitting there just glaring at me. And (laughs) I'm like having the time of my life. I said, I love these guys. This is a great place, you know, and we're just kind of sharing our stories and drinking coffee. And, you know, I felt that that was a comfortable place. I knew I probably might need to do something like this. What finally made me decide that this is it, I got to do something, was um, I got a call that no parent wants to get. My um, son got in an accident, and he had flipped the car, and he was in the hospital. They called us at home at about midnight on a Friday night, and I had been drinking all night. My wife and I had just come home from a friend's house. So when we got that call, I had to ask my wife to drive. I said, I'm in no condition to drive. I said, you know, my son's in the hospital because he's you know, got in a drunken car accident and I can't drive. And so we went there and I spent the night in his hospital room and uh, I sent my wife back home. And I said, come see us tomorrow. And so, you know, he and I had a heart to heart talk and uh, I said, hey, listen, I know you got a problem. He says, because I got one, too. And that's the first time I ever said I was an alcoholic. And I told him the story of, you know, of my family. And uh, I said, you know, we got to do something about this, both of us. And I said, if you go do it, I'll go do it. So I quit drinking my first time on August 1st, 2010. That was the first time I ever walked into an AA meeting. Of course, you know, I was out of town. And so I figured, okay, this will be safe. No one will know me here. And uh, I found a meeting in Rochester, New York. And I did like everybody else did. I sat in the parking lot till right at the time the meeting started, walked in, and I found out something. So if you walk in at the last minute, you sit in the front. <laughs> that's how you get to know people. And that was the first meeting I went to. And it was it was really interesting. I enjoyed the meeting. And when it came term for me to talk, I just kind of blurted out. I said what had happened. And, you know, that was a couple of days sober. And the next thing I know, you know, they're shaking my hand. I got a coin in my hand. And I walked out of that meeting with four telephone numbers, had guys tell me, say, hey, listen, gets thirsty on the road. Call me. And there were people and they knew they'd probably never see me again because here I am in Rochester, New York. And I said, hey, I live in Pittsburgh. I'm not going to be back. I said, no, don't worry. Just call us if you need us. So I knew there was a place to go. And when I got back home, I went to a meeting close to my house. And again, thinking, you know, hoping I wasn't going to run into somebody I know. And sure enough, <laughs> I waited the last minute to walk into the meeting. I'm sitting in the front row again. And I'm walking out of the meeting. I said, oh, that went pretty well. And I hear someone shouting my name from the parking lot. Turned out to be a guy that uh, our kids were in baseball together back in the old days. And uh, he said, ah, don't worry. He says, I've been coming here for years. You're going to like it here. So that's how I got started. And that's how I got started in the meetings. So again, you know, this is my first time around. I uh, liked it, started going to meetings, started going to more meetings and got a sponsor, started working some steps. And I was in the program probably about, I think I was sober for about eight months and uh, feeling pretty good. But I always left myself an option saying, well, maybe I'm not really an alcoholic. Maybe I can just go back out. Now that my system's cleaned out, Mm -hmm. 
a decent amount of time, maybe I can go out and try it again. And so, yeah, I went back out. I was out of town and I was at a meeting, yeah, with uh, some senior people in my company again and some senior customers and they ordered a really special bottle of wine and I just told myself I can't say no. So I joined in and, you know, it started off, it wasn't too bad, half a glass of wine and waited to the weekend before I drank again. Then I had a beer and now I was still going to meetings, but I was justifying myself that I was still sober because I wasn't getting drunk. But just I kind of slowly, slowly relapsed over a couple months, got to the point where, yeah, I started drinking more days of the week. And all of a sudden, then I started getting drunk and I started noticing bad behaviors coming back, tempers coming back. And I was still going to meetings. And at the same time, you know, my son relapsed. So he's really going off the deep end. Again, my wife said, you're either in this or you're not. Either you're in it or you're not. So make a decision. And uh, what happened was I was at a meeting and I saw this young kid at a meeting go up and get a 24-hour chip. And uh, he said, look, I said, I relapsed this week. And I sat there and it just shamed me because I said, this kid could go up there and get a 24-hour chip and I can't be honest about this. And so that weekend I had my last drink and that was the night of December 10th and December 11th is my sobriety date. That's when I really started working the program. You know, the first time I was in the program, it seemed easy. It seemed everything, you know, this is not drinking is easy and it's fun. I tell you what, that second time around, knowing what I knew was a lot harder the second time. It was, um, I had to eat a lot of crow. I had to go to a lot of meetings and tell people I had been lying about not drinking. And uh, my son was in jail at this time because he had failed to show up from court. So they were punishing him by putting him in jail. And it was a hard time for everybody. But I tell you what, I don't think I ever would have made it had I not had the support of the people in the rooms. You know, most of my friends kind of forgot that my son was alive when he was in jail. But I tell you what, every meeting I went to, I had guys saying, oh, son's in jail? Let's go visit him. I'll come with you. Who does that? <laughs> we do. Yeah. Who voluntarily says they'll go to a jail with you? I hear you. Know? you. Not normies. Support? Not normies. <laughs> Man, it was amazing. It really was. And that kind of support that I had was just awesome. I just... Don't think I would have gone through because my normal MO would have been to try and drink all the pain away. And uh, I tell you what, I went through it sober and uh, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have been there for my wife. I couldn't have been there for my son. I couldn't, I really couldn't have done it. So it really changed everything. And so I, I took it seriously. I got a new sponsor the second time around, really worked the steps again. Man, the rest is history. Wow. How's your son doing? Well, that's the sad part. He's been in and out. I don't think mm-hmm. he's ever really gotten the program what's happened with him is he got into painkillers mm, and that took him down fast yeah. and of course you know painkillers get too expensive you switch to heroin so he was doing good for about a year this past year he got into a suboxone program and i'm not a big believer in it i'm kind of old school i think abstinence is the way to go work a program yeah and i figured well you know this will be a step maybe this will get him closer to it and you know what happens? It just keeps him comfortable. And then the next thing you know, he's chipping away at it again. And then I don't know what happened, but he's no longer in the, that program. And so he's back out and he's hiding from us. So you know something bad's going on. So, yeah. But you know what? You realize in this program that you've got to work your own sobriety and that you know, you've got to set the example. But you can't be responsible for somebody else's program. No. Especially when it's a family member. So that's one of the reasons why I work as hard as I can helping out sponsees and helping out new people in the program. Cause I said, you know what? Karma's there. I'm just hoping that some guy out there is going to help my son when his time comes, when he comes into a room and uh, someone else will be there for him. Yeah. And that's just the way it's got to work. 
Absolutely. Well, you're a huge and wonderful power of example. What's funny is, well, it's not really funny, but it's interesting how the reason why you're in the fellowship today and thriving is because of your son. You came in I know. because he was in trouble and you were still so riddled with denial about your yeah. own disease <laughs> that you tricked yourself into going to meetings to help your son. Yep. <laughs> that, yes, that's, that's exactly it. That's exactly what happened. It's a beautiful story, man. And here's yeah. the thing. God was working in your life. God was no working question. in your life through your son. And now you just have to pray for him. You know, God's there for all of us. At some point, we just have to say, God, help me. And if we truly, honestly believe in that, if we have no ulterior motives, if it's not a foxhole prayer, and you really, really want to stop, there's no question about it. You'll get a, a doorbell ring in the morning. You'll get a phone call. You'll get an epiphany. You'll get some kind of white light moment, and you'll go, wait a minute. I know what to do next. He knows what to do. When he's sick and tired of being sick and tired, he'll know what to do next. And he's also got you, man. You got four years solid recovery. You know exactly what to do. You're sponsoring guys. You're leading by example. You've got an amazing life, an amazing story. So, I mean, what more of an example does he need, man? And it's just an amazing story, Steve. Wow, wow. You know, it's funny because when I did, I did get your email and you told me a little bit about your story on the email. And I said, I got to get this guy on the show. (laughs) It's like, it's horrific. You know, what you've gone through, especially your time in Beirut. And that's just, that was blowing me away when you were telling your story, man. It really blew my mind. I've never had to experience those things in my life. So it's yet another thing for me to be grateful for that I didn't have to go through that. But how difficult must that have been for you to deal with all that? And have you noticed that there's any residual PTSD from that? Well, you know, the best thing is that the drinking really was my way of dealing with PTSD. Right. I find out it's the old-fashioned way of dealing with it, but it's the worst way of dealing with it. And um, I've been able to turn that around. You know, one of the things I'm doing, one of the mentorship things I do now is I work with the Veterans Court. And so what the Veterans Court is just like the drug court in that, you know, the judges feel that, you know, these guys coming back, trying to reconnect with society and they're getting in trouble. They want to give them a second chance because they serve their country. So what they do is they set up this court system. It's a lot like our recovery programs where these guys meet once a week with the judge and the judge talks to them and says, wants them to talk about what's going on in their lives, what they're feeling and um, kind of puts together a rehabilitation program for these guys to work, you know, kind of ways to give back to society and to make amends. And then if they do all the things they're supposed to do, they drop the charges at the end of the year. And so I've been working with these guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan as a mentor. And it's kind of a new program in the County that I'm in. So I volunteered. I said, let me take all the guys with drugs and alcohol problems because I said, I'm the only mentor they have that's in the program. So that's what I specialize in. And so I get these guys, they're coming in and I'm making sure that they're going to meetings. But I want not only work the veterans program, but I also work, you know, their step work with them too and make sure they're getting sponsors and they're going to the meetings. So that's kind of the way I've been able to give back. What a miracle, man. Like I can't even believe that that's part of the system now. That's part of the judicial system. Like that's absolutely a miracle. It really is. And I'm really hoping that this thing's going to spread throughout the entire court system that, you know, when we finally get away from trying to throw these guys in jail. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
instead of throwing junkies in jail, let's come up with a different system. You know, I said, hey, I know you can't force people into recovery, but I mean, when they go to jail, they're sort of forced to getting somewhat clean, but they're getting clean with no real program, no real emotional support. And, you know, so why don't you put together a program where they can work their way out of their their petty crimes or whatever reason they're throwing them in jail if there's truly a drug issue or an alcohol issue that has to be dealt with? That's amazing. What's the name of the program? Well, it's called Veterans Court. And so I'm in Butler County, Pennsylvania. So it's the Butler Veterans Court. And they've got these throughout the United States. They're not everywhere, but they're growing in number. And they really were based originally on the uh, drug courts. And I'm not sure where the drug courts got started, but started in the United States in some cities yeah, probably about 10 years ago. And based on that success, we started using it with the veterans. And it's been real successful. That's beautiful, man. We didn't have that. We had jails, institutions, and death. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I tell you what, man, I love hearing this. It's, I'm very grateful for that. So, Steve, let's start closing up here, man. This has been right. a wonderful, wonderful interview. So let's start closing up, and i like to close up for the newcomer. So I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and I would like you to respond with some insightful and inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Outstanding. All right, let's do it. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? I would have to say there was never a good time to quit drinking because there was always a birthday, Christmas, St. Patrick's Day. Something was coming up that was going to prevent me from getting any amount of clean time in before what I considered it, it was a requirement to drink, whether it be a wedding, a funeral, or anything else I had to attend. So I just had this feeling of this denial that I didn't really seriously have a problem. And there was just too many other important things that I had to celebrate to actually get started. Oh, man. There's so much of your story I can relate to. Yet another one. <laughs> I was right there, brother. All right. So number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I would have to say probably about 10 days. And right after the first time I quit drinking, I was in the rooms. About 10 days, I was at maybe my third meeting. And I remember in the middle of the meeting, sitting down, and all of a sudden, I got this intense, warm feeling that ran through my body. It was almost like a heat wave going through my body. And I remember every muscle in my body just relaxing. I said, man, I said, it was just, it was a real spiritual experience that I just got this feeling of peace that everything was going to be okay. And I'd never felt that before in my entire life. This spring inside my body that had been coiled all my life, just all of a sudden unwound. And it just said, it just told me you're safe and you're going to be okay. Man, that's absolutely beautiful. I love it. Number three, do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Absolutely. There's a book that's sold to the Hazelden Foundation called The Undrunk. And what it is, is it is a kind of a user's manual for AA, but I think it would apply to NA as well. And what it does is, you know, rather than taking the place of a sponsor, it explains all of the steps in kind of a layman's terms. And it also gives the newcomer explanations for what these different terminology is. What does the term we mean when someone says, well, my we is going to meet for breakfast? 
it kind of explains a lot of the terminology. It's a really easy read. You can knock it out in like two days. And so I always give a copy to my sponsees. And I said, you know, read the first part of the big book, you know, read the big book first, but then read this. So you'll be more comfortable coming into the meetings. So I think that's probably one of my favorite books to give out to people and recommend. Beautiful. Perfect. And number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? The best suggestion was from my first sponsor. And he sat me down at a meeting and he gave me a list of things to do. And one of the things he told me to do was go into the rooms and get out of your comfort zone and shake hands with as many people as you can and introduce yourself. He said, you know, he says, lone wolves usually don't make it. And he said, you need to get in. He goes, find somebody who is as different from you as you are and go up and immediately start talking to him and uh, shake his hand. And I tell you what, it absolutely got me out of my shell and got me into really connecting with people in the rooms. It was really the best thing I could have possibly done. Oh, I love it. That's a great suggestion. So Steve, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? I think that would be it. I think I said, go to meetings, go early, talk to as many people as you can, and um, look for the similarities. I said, yeah, everybody's going to look different than you, and you think that you're unique, and you're not. And I think that um, I remember being at a meeting when I first got in there, and I said, I remember at the end of the meeting, I saw all these little circles of people talking. And of course, my ego was kicking in. I'm like, well, why aren't they talking to me? And I remember somebody said something to me, just kind of said, well, why don't you just go up and join a group of people and just start talking? (laughs) Okay, that makes sense. I said, you know, I never felt excluded in any meeting I've been to. And I'll tell you what, I go to meetings with bikers. I go to meeting with, I'll go into some of the bad sections of town and I'll be in there with street people. And I tell you what, man, I've been able to connect with everybody in the rooms. I've never had an issue anywhere I've been, any part of the country, you know, it's, we're all pretty much the same when it comes down to it. I said, you know, you're going to find the same characters everywhere you go. Absolutely. Oh, I agree 100%. All right, Steve. Great suggestions, buddy. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. I tell you what, you know, what gives me hope for my son is when I listen to all the different stories on your program of young people, of what they've been through. And I just, I know the hope is out there and I know that recovery is out there for him. When I start hearing, I love listening to the young people that are coming to this program because, yeah, I understand man. It's hard as a young person to do it. But when I hear about how much fun they're having, it inspires me and it gives me lots of hope. Same here, brother. Same here. All right. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.